Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April 1st, 2014. That means it's April Fool's Day, but old Jack's not going to pull an April Fool's on you. I keep joking about doing a video someday for April Fool's Day with a Rick Roll in it. <coughs> Excuse me, guys. Uh, maybe one day I will, but not this April Fool's Day. I don't know, man. I got too much going on in the spring to mess around with April Fools. I really do. And this isn't a fool. It really isn't. Anyway, today's show is going to be a little bit old school style. Uh, back when I was in the car, pretty much all I could do was just have a chat with you. I didn't have a lot of uh, news or features or interviews or things like that. And when I went into an individual subject, I could only go so in-depth. So it was more of a chat with Jack. That's what today's going to be about. It's going to be about taking the TSP Homestead forward in 2014. This week, uh, starting tomorrow, students are showing up. We're going to have over 40 people here on the site. It'll be fun and stressful, I'm sure, at the same time. We're going to plant hundreds of trees. And then what? Like, everybody's going to go home. I'll probably sleep for a day. And then what? What What do we do next? I mean, Joe's going off to, you know, run the Permaethos farm and things like that. And um, I'll have to go up there once this summer, but... We're going to go back to a point where it's just Dorothy and I. We don't have an intern here anymore, um, and we're not going to do one for the summer. Definitely, we probably won't do one this way ever again, um, not because Joe wasn't great. He was actually ex exceptional, but when we look at like where we're going from here, it just there's not a place for a full-time live-in intern uh, in the future here on property. The property's just not that big, and most of the development is going to have been done. Um, so where do we go from here? What do we do? Where do we take things to the next level now that the infrastructure is installed, so to speak? We're going to talk about that today and some cool stuff that we have planned. And if, you know, if you're one of these people that doesn't usually get over to the blog, the survivalpodcast.com, you just get this in Stitcher or whatever, you don't really mess with the show notes, come over today just to see uh, a cool picture that I posted in today's episode. It's not really related to the episode, but it sort of kind of is. At least I made it so with the caption, but I... I think you'll like it. Anyway, before I get into uh, the main topic today, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is KnifeKits.com. Hey, you want to learn how to make knives? Go to KnifeKits.com, get a kit, get some stuff. If you're still not sure, get a DVD or a book. you're still not sure, call them up. They'll help you. How awesome is that? KnifeKits.com is the source for the custom knife maker and the beginning knife maker Uh, all at the same time. It is really awesome to see some of the knives that people actually make over at KnifeKits.com, including knives that they make for their very first knife. Check them out today, and remember, they do do a discount for members of the Member Support Brigade. Uh, the next, next up today is Backwoods Home Magazine. I've read this magazine since 1993, since I got out of the Army. Let me say that again. I've read this magazine since 1993 when I got out of the Army. I just talked about the old school TSPs where I would chat with you in the in the car. A lot of stuff I talked about, man. I, I, I learned at least the basis of them or learned about them from Backwoods Home. Backwoods Home, to me, is the only true imprint on the shelf, holding your hand, libertarian-minded uh, resource for building up your homestead that's worth having. There's some other ones out there that are okay. Um, 
But Backwoods Home, if you're going to have a print magazine sent to your house, it can only be one. You're concerned about self-sufficiency and self-reliance. This is the one to get. BackwoodsHomeMagazine.com. Remember, they have a special deal for new subscribers that are part of a support brigade. Next up there, Discount Vendor of the Day. This is a company that is a discounter to members of the brigade, but not an official sponsor because we don't have any room for more sponsors. And today's is the Primal Power Method with Gary Collins. Uh, check out Gary Collins' uh, website, PrimalPowerMethod.com, and uh, MSB members get 10% off your purchases at Primal Power Method. Gary is also a member of the Expert Council and a really awesome guy. I got to finally meet him face-to-face out in California. I was certainly not disappointed. On that note, do consider joining that member support brigade. If you're new to the show, you're like, what is this MSB, MSB thing the guy's talking about all the time? The member support brigade is the way you support the show. You support the show at $50 a year. Uh, which is about 18 cents an episode. Or you can do it like $5 a month. You can do it $30 twice a year. It's up to you however frequency you want to do it at. When you join, you get access to a private members area. In that private members area are discounts now to over 40 vendors. If you're buying stuff for the for your guns, for your gardens, and anything in between, uh, herbal medications, stuff for your cooking, you name it, the discounts there pay for the membership over a year For many people, it pays for the membership many times over. There's also about $200 worth of ebooks in the MSB that are free. There's video content available nowhere else, and you help support the show. So that's what it is. It's a great deal for you, and it's how we earn our money here because we don't do affiliate sales. Whenever I get an affiliate uh, offer, I say, hey, give that discount to my members. Some companies are like, okay, and some are like, we don't do that. Then I'm like, we don't do business together. This is the program I've set up to monetize the show, uh, more so even than the sponsored advertising, and that's why I keep it that way. That's why I recently got folks that wanted to take Jeff Lawton's PDC, a $100 discount, double the cost of membership. And military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, first responders like firefighters, EMTs, paramedics, all of you qualify for a discount. If you are prior service or active duty, does not matter. Not just retired, any service at all in your life, in one of those genres, you get a discount. You email me, and you email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. You put service discount in the subject line, and you send that to me with one or two sentences telling me about your service, and you do it when, dun-dun-dun, before, not after, you join. All right, with that, let's get into our history segment today. The year is 1325, because the episode's 1325. Here comes the canon. Alex Shrug at TSPWiki.com has set up our uh, history segment, as always, for us today. I'm reading Here Comes the Canon. He's got a couple other ones there. How the Dark Ages became dark, and Aztecs finally find their capital. But I'm going with Here Comes the Canon. I think you guys are canon people. The French are credited with having invented the canon in 1325. Edward III of England will copy and use it in battle a few years later. The first cannon is a vase-like bottle tipped on its side, set on a wooden frame with a large arrow sticking out of the bottle. The cannon brought fear to the battlefield, mostly to those men who had had to light it off. Medieval technology made it difficult to cast reliable iron cannons. They tended to crack and blow up. The first recorded fatality from direct cannon fire will occur in 1428, when a cannonball bursts through a window, as Thomas Mortif, 4th Earl of Salisbury, is looking out, he will die six days later. My take by Alex Shrugged, again, who puts these together for us. The early cannon is a scare weapon and nothing more. The European gunpowder mixture is weak because they're using calcium nitrate and saltpeter. Uh, they don't have the gunpowder mixture right. 
with very little natural saltpeter available in Europe. They are importing it from China, which makes it expensive. In 100 years or so, they will switch to potassium nitrate, which is better. Stephen Harris might want to comment on this. Oddly enough, during World War I, a shortage of acetone used in the production of cordite, smokeless gunpowder, will force the British government to use horse chestnuts in a biofuel fermentation process to produce the needed acetone. Current-day methods strip acetone from petroleum products, but interest in biofuels has revived in, in recent years. Aside from ethanol and acetone, such a process can produce uh, butanol as a fuel. Uh, I think what's interesting is they invented the can in 1325. People used it blew up all kinds of smoke on battlefields, and they weren't able to actually kill somebody on the gun side of a cannon uh, until 1428, which is, what, 103 years later. But these weapons will evolve very quickly, I think, after that. We'll see as we continue to go through um, our history segments. And thinking forward, the cannon really became the battlefield weapon of choice and stayed so right up until about the First World War when larger artillery and mobile artillery pieces took over. In, in the Civil War, the cannon was deadly effective, specifically when they used grape shot or canister shot. I was recently watching a show, uh, a movie, that had parts of the Civil War in it, And uh, all I could think of was what a horrible war that must have been. The edge of technology getting forward and the battle tactics of the day meeting each other. Um, it would only be World War I, I think, that during that time frame would reach a more critical collision of modern technology and outdated battle tactics. Anyway, that's enough of a downer. Let's go into uh, the main topic of today's show, which is what are we going to do, man? So... Yeah, here's what's going on. Like, so Joe is going to find a couple tenant farmers to work with him. He's going to go to West Virginia. He's going to start building a perm ethos farm. He's going to do an awesome PDC. I got an awesome video trailer coming out for you about that next week. Just awesome stuff. I'll have to go up there like at least once this summer to help teach a major earthworks course we're going to do up there as we put in two ridge point dams, and it's just going to be awesome. But that's like one week that I'm going to be up there. And so then my house is going to be back to just Dorothy and I and the dogs and cats and the chickens and the ducks and the geese. And we're going to have all these trees planted. We'll prune them and then pretty much water stuff and trees grow. And we've got like a good 80% of the property into some level of production at that point. So what next? Where, where do we take this? And... I have a lot to do. I mean, it seems like, yeah, it's a big, monumentous thing, and it is. And here's what's about to happen. When we run this workshop, and these students come in, and we plant these trees, and I, I think it's going to be so beneficial to so many people that they're going to really look at it when we're done and go, oh, that's how you establish a food forest. It all makes sense now. It all really makes sense. So that's great. But at that point, we've kind of made this shift. Up till now, we've been doing hugel mounts, we've been doing swales, we've been doing uh, earthworks by hand and by machine. We've been taking the landscape, finding what's wrong with it, why it's eroding the way that it is, and putting infrastructure in place to halt that. And now, at least on two-thirds of the property, that's pretty much done. 
Now, there's other little earthworks I'll be doing. I'll be doing Hugel Mounts. I'll even talk about a thing we're going to call Work with Jack Weekends if you if you are local and want to hang out on a weekend at some point during the late spring and early summer and into the fall. Um, but most of that is done now. And, and what that has created is a point where we go from, think of it this way. I've been putting in highways and bridges for now. I've been putting in infrastructure, metaphorically, of course. Now we're about to start building houses and shops. So that's the trees. So once the neighborhood's established, we go into this mode of a manager versus an architect. So we've put that all into place. And there'll be little buildings, and just like a town gets established, you know, we're going to put a convenience store here, or we're going to put a community center there, but pretty much the main building is done. That's where we're at. So we start saying to ourselves now, well, what do we, what do we want to do next? And one thing we've realized is that we need more chickens moving through our landscape, that that's an advantage, but we only want so many sitting in a coop and you know being difficult to move around and all. So one of the biggest things that I'll be figuring out is exactly how I'm going to manage moving chickens through my landscape and make it easier on myself and make it where adult chickens can live wherever they happen to be that night. I don't have to like catch chickens and carry them back to the coop. Because the other thing we've noticed is when you bring a chicken up in a chicken uh, tractor or a paddock system, they're really cool with it. They don't, they don't care. They're like, oh, okay, this is where I am today. And they eat and they do their thing. When you take a chicken that's been used to being pretty much let run or given a big, big area to run in, and you move them into a more controlled environment, a lot of times our adult birds, they just kind of sit there like, okay, when you let me out, I'll go back to work. So we have them processing large amounts of compost for us now and all. But what we're going to do is create four or five small flocks. When I say a small flock, I mean maybe six birds, eight birds, something like that. And we're going to put them in a tractor-style system and move them around the entire three acres. And this is going to tie into something that I'll talk about Dorothy doing a little bit later today. Um, but that will produce a lot of eggs, but it will produce a lot of fertility. And it will allow us to have an area that we know needs to be worked And I've got birds way, way over here, but I'll have another group of birds I can move in. And we're probably going to do most of the hatching of those birds ourselves. Uh, after hatching out a couple of birds this year, it's been really easy. But with some of the ideas I have for design, these birds I've been playing with, these uh, Tetra Tint crossed back to Rhode Island Red, which somebody corrected me in their right by on the genetics, by taking a half-breed chicken, half Rhode Island Red, half White Leghorn, hen, and bringing her back to a Rhode Island Red, I'm effectively getting a bird that's not two-thirds Rhode Island, it's three-quarters. So it's three-quarters and one-quarter at that point. And I don't know how big these birds are going to be. But the type of fencing I'm envisioning is not going to have a lid on it, so to speak. And it's not going to be electric, because it's too much trouble with my environment for now anyway. And um, they are so lithe, and they're so good at flying out of things I may need to look at heavier breeds for this, um, and I'm thinking maybe to bring in some Borf, Buff Orpington genetics. These may be a much better bird for what I'm doing. We'll probably be running this bird in two to three year cycles, and at three years, it's time for them to graduate to meat status. And the Buff Orpington is probably the best dual purpose bird out there. So I may need to bring some of the, some of the Orpington genetics into my chicken mongrelism that I'm creating here. Um, I'm still up in the air about whether or not 
to have most of these minor flocks, these, these mobile flocks, have a rooster. My concern is I'm thinking an area of 8 by 8 to 8 by 16 as the fenced area, and I'll talk about how I'm going to do that in a second. Um, and my concern is that a rooster in that confined space with a small flock of hens might be a little bit too much rooster if you, if you get my drift. So I'm not sure on that. But the unique thing would be by having multiple flocks and, and choosing my roosters, I could get pretty creative with breeding. Because I know these eggs came from there. So if I know what the six or eight hens in that group are, and that might be a way to do it, just expand the flock to eight hens. So then one rooster has eight hens, and they're going to be you know, a little bit less flustered, so to speak. Um, I would be able to know exactly what my crosses are, because I really want to do more work with developing regional strains of birds and going into the next few years. So I'm really thinking about doing that and just maybe ordering, uh, once we get packed from vacation, ordering a run of chickens from McMorry or Cackle or Metzer or something like that, just a straight run of Orpingtons and, and seeing what I get out of that and picking and choosing what I want. The way I'm thinking about doing the mobile system, though, is building a mobile coop, pretty simple with wheels, high enough up that the birds can get underneath it during the day. couple panels on the roof that fold out with, with shade cloth on them or just anything that will increase the shade so that coop's always providing a shady spot. Uh, obviously, built-in water in that coop so that there's a waterer that goes everywhere that they go. Uh, possibly a small battery, small solar panel, not for electric fence, but for an electric door um, so that the birds can simply be shut in and opened up every morning. Um, with one caveat, then, uh, i got to make sure I move them <laughs> before the door opens or after the door closes. But that may be an easy way to do things because um, I'll probably move these birds every day. Um, with this type of system. The fencing, what I'm thinking about doing is using not the 16-foot cattle panels I have because they're heavy and it makes the whole process cumbersome. But they make 8-foot cattle panels or hog panels. or are 50 inches high and they weigh about 14 pounds a panel. And by building some feet onto them and making them freestanding and putting some uh, uh, like uh, carabiners as the links that hold them together, I should be able to move and configure those fences very easily any way that I want so that I can come into a situation where I want to graze the chickens right in between a couple beds or right in a tight spot. Well, I could create kind of an oblong, weird shape then so that they would have a long, narrow path that would spread back out. And I'm thinking roughly eight panels um, per chicken coop. And building the coop with some big hooks on the back. So you just pick your panels up, hang them on the coop, roll the coop forward, and then set up your fencing however you wanted. And that way all you have to do is move the birds at night after they go in, which is, you know, there's usually plenty of light left by the time the birds choose to go into their coop, or in the morning before you let them out. And again, if I do some automation with the doors, eh, we'll see. I'm not sure on that, but as long as we're good about moving them in the evening, that automated door might be a great thing. What we might actually do is set up an automated door that simply lets them out in the morning and manually put them to bed. But we could flip that over, and let's say we were going to be gone for one day, so they had to just be in one spot for two days instead of one day. And I wasn't really going to have anybody shepherd the place much during that day. They could just boom, open, boom, close, open, close, next day I'll move them. 
So that's kind of the plan that I have. If anybody has a lighter weight, a more secure way to create movable fencing, and understand I cannot, in most of my property, I cannot get stakes in the ground. And because even where I can get the stake in the ground, it's right to the rock layer. When you put a pole in the ground with a spike here, within a day it just starts to fall over. The, the, the soil is so loose and friable on top of the limestone that even where I can build, a, and I've done it with some you know, non-electric fencing, you look and all of a sudden the birds are just off doing their own thing. Well, And you're like, how'd they get out? Well, when you go look at it, the poles are just, and they're not pushed over, they're just kind of sagged and fallen over. So Paul Wheaton did some thing with like these, he calls them concrete washers, and I don't know, I looked at them and I just see that being cumbersome. I see having movable panels that are as lightweight as possible, as sturdy as possible, and config, infinitely configurable uh, being the solution. And being able to just pick them up and, and hang them on the chicken uh, house seems perfect. The chicken house then doesn't need to be elaborate. It doesn't need to be that big. Um, I like the idea of having roof panels that fold up so that it's narrow when you're moving it, but fold out to create shade so that no matter which way the sun's going, there's always shade for the birds um, and have they have their water there and all that. I think that's the way to go. And if I do have any power needs whatsoever, I mean, we're talking something you could do with a 20-watt uh, panel and a little deer feeder battery would be sufficient Uh, so it would be inexpensive. So that's the chicken plans. Um, I want to talk about because because of the fact that we have these chickens, we have these ducks, and we have these geese, and we have dogs. We've had to de contend with a new puppy over a year who, very young in his day, killed a chicken. We had him pretty well trained, we thought. We trusted him too long, and we found one of our pullets dead. And the comments I got when I posted that out made me want to smack some of you folks in the face. I, I know that sounds bad, but it, but it did. The, I had several people say, you might as well shoot him. And you folks, I'd like to take your gun and stick it up your ass. Not pull the trigger, but stick your gun up your ass. I really would. I had a lot of people say, the only thing you can do now is tie the dead chicken to him and beat him senseless with it and let him drag it around for a month. No. Let me explain something about having livestock and dogs. You chose to bring the livestock on your property. You chose to bring the dog on your property. It is incumbent upon you to ethically handle the conflict. And beating an animal is something stupid, dumbass rednecks do. And if you're doing it, stop doing it and stop being a stupid, dumbass redneck. You don't need to beat an animal to train an animal. And if you think that's necessary, there's probably things I know how to do that you don't. So here's my way for you to gain some perspective. Come to my house, okay? Tell me what you want to learn how to do. I will get a large, thick stick. And you go try to do it. And every time you do it wrong, I'll tell you you're bad and I'll beat the shit out of you. And we'll see if you learn. And when you're tired of having the shit beat out of you, Ask me to provide gentle corrective action, and then we'll see how fast you learn. And if it works for you, it works for a dog. Now, pain does work. In martial arts training, I use pain to convey certain things. In military training, we use pain 
in the form of exercise to convey certain things. We don't beat the shit out of people, though, if we're good at what we do. People that beat anybody to teach or anything to teach anything are not good at what they do. Our solution for Charlie, we got him an electric shock collar. Now, I know some people are going, oh, no. Well, um, it's about like a bee sting. Total times he was shocked, twice. Two times. Then he wore the collar, and the collar has a thing on it that vibrates. Once he knew what it did, I actually turned the setting on the collar all the way down to one, which I touched myself with on one. You barely feel it. And with his hair, he wouldn't. One would be a useless setting, just so I didn't accidentally shock him. And all I had to do was go no and hit the vibrate. Gentle corrective action. Right? Get your attention. Hey, here's a little bit of pain to get your attention. Now, vibration. Hey, remember? Oh, yeah. He's so much better. We still have to watch him. I still wouldn't put him out free range with the birds and not worry about it. But the only one he gets really into it anymore with is the geese because they attack him. And uh, I've actually seen him several times where they attack him, grab one by the head and pull it around, but not actually hurt it. Um, so I would not trust him alone, but I, I now have a dog that I can work with around my animals and he doesn't try to kill them. And I didn't have to beat him and I didn't have to shoot him. And those of you that say beat, I guess it's what you were taught and you don't know any better. Well, now you do. Those of you that say shoot, you need your ass kicked. You bring an animal on your property and you don't take responsibility for the animal's actions. So your solution is to kill it. You're a jackass. Anyway, I just had to vent on that because it, it really bothered me because Charlie's my buddy, man. And uh, again, I just think some people are not aware that there are simple solutions to complex problems, not just in permaculture, but really in all things. Anyway, um, next up, uh, the geese herd is being expanded. Uh, as many of you know, uh, I got eight geese last year, uh, four pairs. And we had a predator attack and when I was away. Uh, and so the animals couldn't be... Dorothy wasn't quite able to control them yet, and they weren't able to be put where they needed to be. And because of that, they got attacked. And we lost three. Going into the spring, we determined that we lost, of course, three geese. Well, Jack, you said they were geese. No, in, in geese vernacular, you have geese and ganders. So we had gooses and ganders. And we lost all females. So we have one female and four males. So um, it's very difficult to get to lose geese sexed. And even when people will sell them to you, they will not do it like you can't just order like five or six or ten females, right? They have requirements. You take a certain number of males. So I ordered uh, trios, and it'll bring our goose total goose population up to about 20 but very balanced, very one-on-one. -on -one. So um, we're bringing those guys in, and they're going to be managed very heavily with also movable, movable fencing. Um, but I won't build them with so much of a coop. I might just build them a shade area uh, and, 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 and some way to make sure that they have water wherever they are. They are not to be trusted in a garden. Um, there's... A lot of times I just bring them out into an area of grass and I hang out with them. And if I have the time for that, that's fine. But if I want them to really graze an area like cattle, they need to be confined. Um, you probably need an area bigger than 16 by 16. So these guys are probably going to, I'll probably have to build an additional 12 panels to make areas for them. But the beautiful thing about the geese 
is they're so easily managed. They're so easily shepherded. I mean, I take a little stick, and I just go, let's go, geese. And they sometimes they hiss at me and whatever, but I, once I get them moving, I can just move them anywhere I want them to go, and they all go like a great big herd, and you can put them in and close the door, and I move them all over the place. So by setting up an area for them and moving them into it and closing them off, they probably won't even be there all day. The west pasture will remain a place that they can pretty much free range. So I can move them into an area for two or three hours and then push them back over to their main area. So we're going to have uh, a pretty big goose herd, uh, and that's what I'm going to call it, even though technically it's a gaggle, um, because I'm managing them much like you would manage a herd with, with uh, cell grazing. We are going to uh, our goslings that we have coming in, plus the one gosling we hatched, and we were only able to successfully hatch one gosling. I've got some eggs in the incubator, but I'm not real, um, real convinced that I'm going to get any more goslings out of them. Um, but uh, we are going to make sure that this round of goslings gets a lot more human contact. Uh, than the first group did. They got pretty good contact with me. They didn't get much with Dorothy. I think that's part of why they're so um, aggressive towards her individually. Um, we have one gander, uh, Nemo, who was the survivor of the great attack, and I really like him. But if he doesn't get his shit together, he's going to be a Christmas goose this year. He really is, because he's becoming just absolutely obnoxious. Uh, and, and the other four really are not. And it might just be he's the dominant goose. But my hope is with a larger flock, uh, with a lot of human contact, that we'll be able to quell a little bit of their anger. I actually have no problems with them at all. I can go work with them constantly, and uh, occasionally Nemo will try to sneak up on me and grab my calf or something. But what's funny is the other geese always rat him out. Um, he got Joe today pretty good when Joe turned his back on him to walk away. Um But in general, I think that geese are an animal much like dogs. By working with them, uh, they, they tend to accept you. And it's, it's, it's also the case that this is spring and the one hen has been laying or one goose has been laying. And they're going to be naturally more protective this time of year. So I think she's kind of coming to the end of her cycle with laying eggs. The eggs that she's laid, I don't think are going to be able to hatch. She really didn't know what she was doing. She had no other, uh, geese with her because the males would leave. Um, so I just think she's still learning her, her, her role as a mother and, and just not ready yet. She's going to be a year old next month. So she's a very young bird. Um, we're also bringing ducks into the system. I talked about this already, but we bought 12 ducks, uh, four Peckins, four Rowans, and four um, Khaki Campbells. Last night we had a, a death. Um, I've been putting the geese out on pasture already or the, the ducks out on pasture and the baby chickens. We have like 11 baby chickens we hatched out as well. And they're in a little a little hand-built uh, chicken tractor. It's where the ducks are. And they've been doing great. We've been swimming them, and they're happy, and they have a kiddie pool. We put them in, and they swim for about a half an hour, and we put them back on their tractor, and everybody's doing good. And then every night we put them into the brooder because they're just not ready to be out overnight yet. And last night, one of the little peckins was just really, really limp. So Dorothy took him in, and she had him wrapped in a towel on her chest for a couple hours, and he died. So uh, we did have a death, and that's part of having livestock. If you look it up, the percentage of death in most duck breeds, infant death, uh, is two and a half to three and a half percent are going to die even if you do everything right. Um, we're not sure what happened to him. If he got sick, if it was just sudden SIDS, sudden infant duck death syndrome, right? I don't know. Um, but hopefully we won't have any more losses from our duck flock because the ducks are something we're really looking forward to. They will not need anywhere near as much control 
as a chicken. Um, there are some crops they'll kind of get into, but in general, ducks are great foragers. And for most part, they can be trusted uh, to not eat things you don't want them to eat. They pretty much like grass and bugs. And God, these guys are predators. These little bitty ducks are still so small, you hold them in one hand. You put them in the pool, and there's like flies flying around the pool, and they're they're like leaping out of the water, snapping at flies at like a week and a half old. Um, pretty amazing. One killed a bee yesterday. It was a three-duck tag team to kill a bee. The first one bit it and knocked it down. The second one came cruising across the water, picked it up and chomped it, but dropped it. And the third one came in and ate it. Uh, so they had a, a three-duck tag team on a bee. And it was it was a multiracial tag team. Man. It had, uh, a Rowan killed it, and then a Peckin chewed on it, and then the uh, uh, the Khaki Campbell hated it. Um, so it's, 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 uh, you know what? That makes me wonder if that little pecking got stung and that's what happened to him. I, I doubt it, but it's, I guess it's theoretically possible because I do think it was the pecking that came through and like chomped on it. So I guess that's a possibility that he had either, you know, a little bitty thing getting bit by a bee or he had a reaction to the venom. Uh, I don't think it's probable because none of them reacted like they were harmed by the bee, but I guess it's, I guess it's possible. Maybe John Dowie can uh, weigh in on that. But with all this waterfowl, um, we need more water. We've been using 50-gallon stock tanks, and that works pretty well, and it's a great fertility thing because you can just dump it wherever you want. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to bring in an 8-foot round by 2-foot deep stainless steel stock tank. I've thought about taking a couple of them down where the old homeowner tried to build a pond, leveling that area out with an excavator a little bit more, digging it as deep as we can because the rock is kind of crumbly down there, putting some sand in, putting two of them in side by side, plumbing them together with a drain, putting the dirt around it, and making that a pond. I might still do that. I am worried about stagnation. I'm not worried about mosquitoes. I'm worried about it just being really stagnant. And the issue with that spot, well, it's the best spot to bury them. It's the worst spot for them to be because they're low. They're in the, one, the lowest spot on the land. So to use that water anyway, they have to run power down there and put a pump in it, or I have to drain it somehow into a tank and then tow it somewhere. And neither one of those seem like very good ideas. There is potential to do a forest garden down there, but there's a lot of native trees down there that are really not hip on cutting. Um, maybe moving a little further upgrade, we could use that as an edge and do a forest garden with some minor earthworks in there and drain it into those earthworks, uh, run a water line down there and be able to drain it frequently and refill it frequently. But I'm taking that and I'm putting it on the let's examine this one later shelf. What I am going to do is bring in at least one of those big steel tanks. Again, I have six footers in the, 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 uh, The urban uh, pond gardens that you've seen, those are two six-footers. This will be an eight-footer. Uh, they hold roughly 700 gallons, I think, of water. Uh, so that's a lot of water. I now have power to my chicken coop. On the back side of the chicken coop, it stays pretty shady because it's, it's the north side, right? Uh, there's power in there. I can run one wire down in an outlet, and I can put that eight-footer, level it with some sand, and stick it right there. I can build, basically, instead of trying to bury it, because it's not going to make a lot of sense to bury it. It's really not. Um, it's easier just to level it, but I can basically use some landscape timbers and build, basically, duck stairs and goose stairs in. And then they'll have a pretty big body of water, a goose pool, a duck pool, 
to go into. That's not real high on the land, but it's not super low either. Um, it will be very easy to move that water passively over to my Zone 2 um, forest garden. So I can actually just run a hose over, and with gravity I could fertigate uh, that whole area. There's a lot of the property that could be fertigated from that spot. If I were to get a little creative and just lift it up six inches, um, I could probably put water with gravity alone to a large part of the property, uh, additional part of the property. Certainly the whole front pasture, the whole back pasture, things like that. My reality, though, is by putting it there, I'll be able to wall in a little area that the geese can't mess up because they like to mess up pumps. Put a small low-draw pump out there. That circuit runs my pump for my pool, so I don't want another big, heavy-duty pump. But I found a pump that only draws 20 wa 25 watts uh, that I can put in there, and I won't, it won't be doing like a recirculation thing. It'll just be aerating. So I'll have that in the backside, just running like maybe a little waterfall or something there to keep that water fresh. That means I can throw goldfish in there. Yeah, the ducks might eat some of the fish, whatever. I don't care. I controls the mosquitoes. The ducks have a pond. I have another fertigation source. Um, and it will be real easy to have the water from the chicken coop go in there. I don't even need gutters, really. I could just do flashing and just channel it in there. But what I'm probably going to do is take a gutter, just bolt it up there, Uh, a gutter piece is 10 feet. The coop's only 16 feet long. So with two pieces of metal flashing and one piece of gutter, boom, one downspout and, uh, all that and just put a rain chain down to there. And when I know a big rain's coming, all I gotta do is go ahead and drain some of that fertigated water out and let it recharge. I'll have a water line I'm running over there later this summer. So I'll have, without having to have a hose laying on the ground again. So I'll have multiple ways to get water recharged into that. And that pond will be the primary pond for ducks, geese, and for chickens will probably drink out of there a lot too. I'll make it where it's easy for them to get up and drink out of it. Um, I may also do some center blocks in a way where the center blocks actually come above the water line. What I, what I found last year was when I took center blocks and I put them in my stock tanks, my little 50-gallon stock tanks that we just manually filled and, and what have you, and they were a couple inches higher, the chickens would get on them to drink and stand there and drink. And because the cinder block actually wicks water, I mean, if you put a cinder block in a tank with a dry top so it doesn't splash, you come back in an hour, the top's wet. The cinder block's porous, right? Because that water wicks through there, that cinder block actually is a, a, a cooler. And the chickens would just stand there with their feet on this cool pavement like, yeah, man, what a way to chill out. So in the shade and all, that should be magnified. So that's, that's my plans to get at least one decent size, you know, pond in. The other thing I'm going to do for the ducks and the geese is I'm going to get more of the big kiddie pools, the ones that are about, you know, about eight foot. They're cheap though. You get them in the front of Walmart or whatever. I'm going to get a couple of those. But when you fill them, draining them, like you got to lift them and they're kind of hard and all and you got to drain them and move them. What I'm going to do with those, I'm going to get a compression fitting with a valve on it, drill a hole in the, toward the very bottom, but on the sidewall, you put that compression fitting there, and that way when it's time to drain the pool, you just open the valve and let it drain. Put a hose bib on it. Every time you drain it, you can control, you know, a 50-foot hose gives you a lot of flexibility. Those will be kept inside the goose corrals uh, and possibly at times duck corrals because even though I don't really need to control the ducks, hey, if we put them in an area, we can intensively pest control that area because the geese 
are not effective pest control. They're grazers. The ducks are predators. So now we're combining and function stacking the scratching behavior of chickens, the grazing behavior of geese, and the predatory behavior of both ducks and chickens. Because chickens are also predators. But ducks are a little bit more predatory on certain things. So it's it should be an interesting way to watch things move forward. Now, um, we have a new crop we're going to be putting in this year in the aquaculture. I don't call it aquaponics. The aquaculture system that is the garden ponds. My garden ponds, I have two six-foot steel round uh, tanks, one lower than the other, and they're plumbed together. The lower pond has a pump in it. It pumps all the way past the second one to a third tank, which is an oval steel tank, two foot deep, six foot wide, two, uh, six foot long by two foot wide, one of those oval ones. It has a pipe that overflows into the, the, the second pond, and that goes back down to the first pond. It's just a closed-loop system recirculating water. For some reason, it confuses people. It's really not confusing. I built it. It can't be that complicated. So in that back oval tank, what I'm going to do this year, I'm going to go get a bunch of bags of river gravel. I'll rinse it off really good because that stuff's dusty as hell. And I'm going to fill that back tank about three-quarters of the way to the top with river gravel. And then, you know, you got water recirculating in it. I'm going to get some bins that are going to be filled with, with compost and, and uh, soil. And I'm going to plant Chinese water chestnut in those. And those are going to sit on top of that gravel bed. And then that water is constantly recirculating. We'll probably tuck some watercress into that gravel as well. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a huge biological filter. The systems run remarkably stable uh, up till now. But that will create a whole new... Uh, filtering system for, for, the, for the tanks. And it should give us a massive yield. By area compared to weight, the most productive crop in the world is Chinese water chestnut. I think I ordered 28 croms. Uh, they're called croms uh, from a, a, a new source uh, in Massachusetts that I've never dealt with before. But they're the only place I found that I can get them in quantity. I will put a link in today's show notes. But I have to say, right now, this very moment... Uh, it's not an endorsement. It's just simply a place I found. I, I won't know the quality, the shipping time, anything until they get here. But I will tell you this. Last year I tried to find some in late May, and I couldn't get any. So this is the time of year to order water chestnut crumbs if you are going to do them this year. Um, and you don't need a, a really complicated system. You can get like a Tupperware bin and fill it with gravel and water and then put your pots in or your, your troughs in and plant into it and just do it like that. Uh, it would probably be a good idea to have a drain on that thing so you could recharge the water every once in a while. But, I mean, there's it's nothing complicated. Um, again, I'll put a link in the uh, show notes to the source that I found. But, again, just so that no one takes this the wrong way, I'm not saying they're a quality source of goods. I don't know. Uh, but they had them in stock, ready to ship, with good pricing, and a water chestnut is a water chestnut is a water chestnut. Another source where you might be able to find crumbs to grow your own water chestnuts is if you find it. If you have an Asian market near you, some of those places they sell the water chestnuts whole, uh, still a little green sprout coming out of the top of them or whatever. If it's alive, it'll grow. You can put it right into it, but it needs to be, in, from my understanding, a muddy, soily condition, not gravel. Uh, I may try growing a few in gravel just to see what happens, because uh, I have lots of pots and lots of places I could stick some. Um, but from what I was reading, if you want good reproduction out of them, uh, you want to do them in mud. 
because that's where they naturally grow is in mud. So uh, that's going to be a new crop this year, and it's going to create effectively a reed bed in our urban pond garden system to create a large filtration system so that we can demonstrate that on a small scale because we can't put it in here on a large scale. Uh, the next one is we are going to really go big this year on perennial medicinal herbs. Um, I tried to get a lot of stuff started. I had so-so results. Uh, the greenhouse that I've put up is not that great in getting through winter nights. There's no insulation. It had a collapse. It got ice storms this year. And then we got, you know, later in the year than we normally get a, a heavy freeze, we got a 14-degree freeze. Um, so we've had some issues with that. Plus, I've traveled. Joe's traveled. It's, it's, it, it's been tough. But I'm going to keep propagating herbal plants, specifically perennial herbs, Right through the summer, I've got shade cloth on the greenhouse now. Um, a major greenhouse is going to go in this year on the side of the barn. Uh, that's going to be awesome. I'm not really going to talk about today because that is going to be its own show, how we're going to build that greenhouse. Um, but I am going to do lots of propagation, coneflower, narrow-leaf coneflower. Uh, I've got some wormwood doing pretty good, mugwort. Uh, anything that's a perennial herb that's medicinal, valerian, I've got red valerian, true valerian. Those are actually doing okay. Uh, and the perennial vegetables, too, like lovage. I got some lovage doing okay. My Turkish rocket died. Uh, I'm going to get some more seed and try that one again. And we're going to be placing these into all these systems that are already going to be installed this week. And this is where you get, like, the long-term, constantly a little bit here, a little bit there, that, that adds up over time. Um, bees are coming, and here's my deal with bees. I don't know crap about bees, other than what you've learned on the show when I've interviewed bee people. I have no idea what I'm doing. Michael Jordan is bringing three hives I'm buying from him. There's a local guy that does bees that's bringing three packages of bees. It's going to be a bonus for you guys that are coming. We're not doing the bee workshop this year because too many people were upset that we would be doing all this stuff on how to build hives after bee season when they can't get bees. So we'll probably do that in early spring next year. Um, but Mike's gonna, he knows some spots on the site where he's gonna, he's gonna install the bees. Okay, great. Bees are installed. Uh, what am I gonna do? I don't know. Mike's gonna tell me what to buy. I'm gonna buy protective gear and I'll start managing. I'll figure it out. Um, but right now I just want them installed this year so I don't lose the opportunity. And because Mike Jordan is an awesome guy, the Bee Whisperer, one of the most awesome human beings I've ever had the pleasure to meet. He's gonna do that for me. And, uh, and, and it just, I, I'm very, very excited to have bees on property. Uh, even if I don't get good honey yields or whatever this year, even if I get my ass stung a lot as I'm learning how to work with them, I don't care. Um, it's one of those things that, like, I just don't have time to make sure I know everything that I need to know before I do it. So the bees are going in. We're going to try to have, I'm, Mike said he has some several spots. I'm going to try to have him put them somewhere where they're kind of out of our way. Because my property's not that big. I don't think they're going to have much trouble finding all the stuff that's growing on the property and, and frankly, free-raging elsewhere. I don't have bears here to contend with or anything like that. So somewhere out of the way where they're – because Dorothy is not allergic to bees, but she's, let's say, mildly allergic. She has a little bit more of a response uh, to bees and ants and wasps than the average person. So I don't want them in a place where she's day-to-day -day going to come into contact with them. I, I'm not – I don't care – 
Uh, I don't want to get stung like a hundred times at once or nothing like that, but a sting here, a sting there is, I have almost no reaction to a bee sting whatsoever. Getting stung multiple times may change that. I'm going to try to avoid it. I'm going to get whatever the best protective gear Mike tells me is. I'm going to order it uh, right after this event, and uh, I'll work with them slow and steady, and I really only want to take honey out of the hives you know, for my yields uh, and, and, and wax, I guess, uh, at, at times as well. Uh, but ma mainly, I want them for the honey and for the pollination. So this is one of those things where I'm kind of going butt first into it. And butt first into bees may not be the most brilliant thing I've ever done, but I think it'll be okay. Now on Dorothy, Dorothy has kind of wanted something that's hers. Uh, I don't think she understands how big a help she is in the business to me. I, I tell her all the time, like, what she does... With managing the schedule, scheduling the guests, handling additional things that come in, handling the manual entries and the reminders for the MSB and customer service for the MSB is, is awesome. And it saves me so much grief and so much time. And it's basically a full-time job. Well, she gets it done in probably 10 hours a week at the most. Now, why? Because she knows what she's doing and she's good at it. And I'm not saying you have to work from 8 to 5. And I think there's a lot of jobs that are, quote, full-time jobs that, that really are part-time jobs for a competent person to do. And you shouldn't feel like you're not doing a full-time job just because you're good at what you do and you do it fast. When I was with Sales Sage Telecom as their director of Internet Marketing, I can say it now because it's years and years ago, honest to God, I worked 15 hours a week of actual work. I did about 15 hours a week of work. And you know what? I did that job better than anybody else that could have done that job working 40 hours. of. Now, I had 40 hours of being on the job, but I probably had 15 hours of actual work. And no one cared because everything was awesome. And, and that's how I feel about her. But she wants something that's a little bit more Dorothy. It's not you know helping Jack. And I don't know if she's going to do either one of these things, but she's at least considering them, which I think is awesome because I'd like her to have something that's hers. One is, as we expand these chickens, we have so many eggs already We don't have quite enough now to actually sell eggs. But with you know four to six moving flocks and one main, main large flock at the main coop, we do. And there's a pretty good market for it. And we'll have non-soy, non-GMO, pastured eggs. And that should fetch an easy four bucks a dozen. You know, when, when I, I kind of did the math on this before. Um, but we could easily do 36 dozen eggs um, a week. And I don't think we'll have trouble finding the customers for 36 dozen eggs. Um, we give our pool guy two or three dozen every time he comes here, except when we're getting ready for a workshop. Um, we have a lot of pass-through traffic, and uh, that's 144 bucks a week. Uh, that's, that's not bad money, really. Um, if you multiply that by, uh, by the way, if you ever want to know what you're making a month on something, Uh, on a weekly basis, you, you multiply it by 4.34 because there's not four uh, weeks in a month. There's 4.34 when you do the accounting across, amateurized across the year because there's 52 weeks in a year. Uh, that's, that's about $620 bucks a month, $624.96 to be exact. Um, that's not going to change our lives, but that's not bad, especially you know if it's cash money. And the eggs are a byproduct of what we need anyway. So she's thinking about doing that. The other thing we've been talking about, putting in this really good greenhouse and all, I'm like, well, there's plenty of room to put in more than one. And I've been looking into, and I've talked a lot about setting up a nursery. And we could set up a small nursery here. I think we could easily pull twenty to $30,000 a year by our second year 
in a nursery just selling to pass by traffic. Um, that's good income. We don't really need it. But it would be something for her to do. And I'll tell you what the, the, the awesome thing is. It would be a demonstration. This is what you can do. This is something anybody with a little piece of land can do for themselves. And I think it's important that we model the things we say are possible. Because you can say something's possible and people are like, yeah, sure. Or that sounds reasonable, but has anybody done it? But when you're, when you say, well, you can do this and then you, you actually do it, and I, it's not that it gives you credibility. I could care less if you believe what I, what I say or not. I mean, it's up to you. I figure you listen because you at least believe some of it. Um, what I really care about what we do here at TSP is when I hear people say, well, we're doing this and we're doing this and we're doing this. When you guys are out acting on the information that we provide here. And actually not just, well, we stored food. That's great. But when you're like, oh, we created a business. Uh, we've got this particular animal in and now we're using it. And this is how we're rehabbing a pasture or whatever. Where it's actually good things beyond just if something goes wrong. Where it's you're creating greater abundance in your life. That's when I feel good. Well, the more I can do to model the behavior and prove its effectiveness, the greater the number of people who will say, I'm going to do that too. Because it's amazing what happens when somebody does something, right? So it's like a four-minute mile. The four-minute mile was just unbelievable. It was, no one's ever going to ever do that. Humans can't go that fast. But way, way back in 1954, a guy named Roger Bannister ran the mile in three minutes and 59 seconds. And the four-minute barrier has since been broken by many male athletes. It's actually now the standard of all male uh, professional athletes in the middle distance category. In the last 50 years, the mile record has been lowered by almost 17 seconds. Running a mile in five minutes translates to a speed of 15 miles an hour, um, average speed across the distance. So as soon as it was broken, it began to be broken more and more by more and more people. And today, the professional middle distance runner is is breaking that barrier is a matter of course like you're not even in the category if you are a professional athlete and not a football player that's if you are a professional runner and you're running middle distances you're running the mile competitively on the world stage you're under that number or you're not in the club because somebody did it and i think that we look at something like that and go well that's it Athletics, Olympics level sport, world championships. You know what? It's important that we do those things in little, little paces in our lives that other people can look at and see that the stalker mom goes, you know what? We've got this two acres, three acres, four acres, whatever it is that we moved out to the country to have. And uh, the kids are older now and I could do something for myself. And these people did it so I can do it too. And we here at TSP want people prepared. And in the world we live in, part of being prepared is financial health. Being able to pay your freaking bills, not being in debt. And you tell me how many families would be better off with ten to thirty thousand dollars in additional income, especially from their own little business that doesn't go away if dad loses his job or if mom gets hurt, that there's a way to keep that flowing. And if it's something that also encourages exercise and health and the development of knowledge and mental skills and cognitive skills, and how many people really, really need 
to develop something like this is they start to transition to that retired, semi-retired state. Because I'm telling you, I think part of why older people become so feeble in our modern age is not just the horrific nutrition and medications that we put our, our, our citizens on now from cradle to grave. That's a part of it. But I think it's the, the whole, well, I'm done with work now, so I'm going to go home. And not having enough of an active lifestyle. And thinking an active lifestyle means taking four vacations a year instead of two. An active lifestyle is every day. And a little egg business, a little nursery business. I mean, I, I recently I, I bought a big tub of uh, mealworms. And I feed them to the chickens and the ducks. And Dorothy's like, well, where do they get those? I'm like, well, they breed them. And she's like, well, you know. And I, there was a guy that's, that's actually going through Fort Worth Police Department's uh, academy right now named Mike. Uh, that stayed here with us for a week as he was looking for a place. He, I met him in Iowa and he asked if he could do that. So I said, yeah. And he actually, I, I told him, I said, I told her, I said, my, Mike's girlfriend raises these things. And she's like, really? I'm like, yeah. She goes, so people buy them? I'm like, well, I just bought this jug of them for 10 bucks. So she's like, well, maybe I can even raise worms. If nothing else, I guess we could raise them for the chickens. It's not hard to do. Um, so it, it's interesting to see like a lot of Dorothy's like entrepreneurial spirit start to just trickle out. Because she's never been the entrepreneurial type person, but I think she's like now like wow I could I could do something like this, and if I don't like doing it, I'll just stop. It's not like taking a job or having a contract. We'll play with it. We'll see if it works. We'll do it on a small scale. If it doesn't work, we'll just cease and desist. I think the egg business though is like a duh. It's it, we're gonna have so many eggs from the amount of work I want these birds doing. Um, did it make sense? We we've been giving away to some neighbors and all, but. Um, I think with just a sign, uh, you know, we could make $600 or more a month. And that way more than we'll pay for the supplemental feed that they'll need. Uh, these birds now are getting, I'd say, half or more of their nutrition off the land. Even through the winter they were. I mean, the amount of feed they're eating is just not that much. The geese have been the ones hogging the feed because the grass has been so shallow. Um, but the chickens... When I separated the chickens from the geese for a while and realized how, like, they were using, like, a seven-pound feeder in a week and a half. And this is 11 birds and some pretty big birds, too. I'm like, wow, this is, so I know we can keep them on the high-quality feed and do that. So that's uh, that's another little bit of a plan that's, that's going on there. Um, we're also kind of moving into Pasture Restoration 2.0. As I'm calling it, uh, my neighbor across the street has a horse now, and he's been bringing me horse manure, and I've been piling it into a giant compost pile, and he's now bringing it faster than I can compost it. So we have that western pasture, and I've been playing around with different ways to do it, thinking about some earthworks and all. And what we're going to begin doing right away now, because this is going to be easy, is I just told him after this event's over, and we get everybody off the off the pasture, and I know there's going to be mud, and I know there's going to be freaking rain, because why? Because I'm having an event, it's going to rain. And there's going to be 40 cars here, so it's going to rain so that it makes mud. It's going to happen. I just have to accept this. Once that's done, clean up the area a bit, and I'm just, I told them, I said, just wherever you see a bare spot, back the trailer up and dump it. And I'll go in there with a rake and kind of level it out a little bit, and I'll put birds on it. And I'll let them scratch it and tear it up and move in the soil, and we'll just keep doing that. Uh, one horse equals a lot of poop, a lot. And I don't think that a stable would use hay the way that these people do with only one horse. But every load of poop 
is showing up with almost a 50-50 ratio of poop to hay. Because they have hay in his barn that he poops in. I've always been of the opinion you put straw on the floor and hay where the horse can eat it. But I guess these folks are simplifying and they're using hay for both bedding and for feed. So I'm getting high quality hay and poop every time this guy brings over a, a cart. And he's got like a 17 cubic foot cart that he brings over full like once a week now. So if nothing else, that's going to help that pasture immensely. Um, I've actually thought about having him in some of my areas if he can tie that horse out because I don't have a fencing for a horse to contain it and keep it from like eating my trees. Uh, let him come over here and let the horse graze some over here because I've got incredible, incredible growth in my yard now. Guys, a year of doing this, and it's funny because you don't really see what's happening through the winter because we don't have hundreds of trees planted yet and all. They're all sitting out here in the sandbox. Um, but... You look out my window that I'm looking at right now, and just across the fence is my back neighbor, Dennis, and his entire field is still brown. I just heard the news guy say last night, we're in our third year of serious drought conditions, even though it's going to rain like crazy. I don't know how they calculate this. I guess it's based on what they consider normal, but drought conditions, and my yard is lush, green Almost everywhere except that denuded western pasture. And a little bit where we put the food forest in, that was a pretty bad area, and it's just starting to perk up. But the place, when you guys that are coming here get here starting tomorrow, I think you will be absolutely blown away at the dramatic contrast. So we know this works. And with that horse pooping it up, the western pasture should be uh, in really good shape by the end of this year. The final design decisions on exactly what I'm going to do, I have yet to make. I've pretty much decided I'm not. I'm, I'm just going to take that, and it's also going to go on the to-be-determined shelf, uh, along with the, the other uh, ponds we thought about doing, which are also in the western pasture. And I'm going to get through the formation of permaethos, getting Joe up on site, getting him some help up there, and getting that off the ground, taking a vacation with my beautiful wife to Sanibel, Florida, and breathing. And then, you know what? Two-thirds of the property is doing really great. We can look over at that. There's a lot of other little things I want to do. I'm extending hugel beds all the way around the property border. I've got 25 feet, and I've got like, I don't know, 900 feet to go. Um, but as we look at this, we also now say, well, what are we going to do when we have all this abundance? The plums we're going to have alone are going to be like insane, and they're not a good keeper. So um, a lot of this stuff is going to be translated into wine, and meads, a lot of it will be given away. Uh, we may do some produce sales, though. Going into like our third, fourth year after this, we may just, alongside eggs, be offering plums at certain times, blackberries at certain times, whatever. Um, because the, the way we're going to reproduce things here is going to be pretty insane. Uh, we'll put in about a dozen blackberry bushes uh, this year when we do the planning, uh, just initially. But I'll give you a great propagation a method for blackberry. I've seen people do cuttings and all. Just the easy way. You take your cane that's growing this year, all right? And when it gets long enough, you bend it over and you bury the tip a couple inches deep in the soil. So it's like an arch, all right? In the winter, when the thing's dormant, you cut it in half. The cane that you left behind is now a second-year cane, and it will fruit that year. 
All right? The, the, the part you've cut off is rooted. It's now rooted in the ground. You've layered it is what it's called. You dig it up and you plant it somewhere else and it will grow in fruit, but the, it will form the crown, the root crown, and it will start setting up first year canes off of it that year. And by your second year, it's, it's into full production and it's spreading. So we'll, we'll propagate both blackberry and raspberry that way. And that way you don't have to disturb the crown and divide it. It's not that you can't do it. It's not that you shouldn't at certain times. But this is like an easy way that you could have a, a plant with six big canes on it. And you could root those canes. And you still have the plant because you should be tipping those canes back anyway. But instead of cutting them back, what you're doing is propagating them. And because they're still attached to the mother plant and that tip makes ground contact, they start to root right away. And if you pull them out when they're dormant, boom. Now, you've planted it upside down. It'll look kind of funny the first year because the leaves will be going backwards. <laughs> But it doesn't matter because that cane in its second year will die. And all the stuff that comes up out of the roots will be right side up again. So that's just a little handle. But we're going we're gonna to be giving a lot of this away. We'll probably be selling some of it. Whatever we do, we'll be open about what we're doing so that other people can see. Because, again, I think it's important that we model good behavior. Um, but I think it's going to be interesting to see what you can do on three acres, to really see that going into our second, third, and fourth year. And I'm really excited to be able to share this stuff with you. Hopefully some of what I've shared to you today has uh, inspired you to do some of these things yourself. Uh, to realize that you don't need a thousand acres or a hundred acres or even twenty acres to to really have a, a major full on homestead, um, I would like this to be five acres. If I had my druthers and I could just go and wave one and add two acres to it, I would like that. If I could go and move the limestone four feet down in the ground, so I had four feet of topsoil, I'd I'd take that over the extra two acres. But in the end. I, what I have to admit is that three acres plum wears you out. You know, it really does. And we need to get better about automating systems and uh, setting up uh, systemic methodologies for everything that we do. Uh, a little bit better with our zone controls. When I talk about our zones, I mean our permaculture zones, our zone one activity, zone two activity, uh, and, and what have you. So we're not making paths three, four times a day. Because um, it's easy to let yourself do it when it's only three acres and you don't realize that by the end of the day you've maybe walked four miles. Um, but I don't think that's bad either. I don't think it's bad either. I think that maybe it makes sense to be a little bit more methodical, but the walking is good for you too. Uh, hopefully, again, you've enjoyed today's show. I look forward to sharing more of what we're going to do with you, and I look forward to hearing what you're doing in your lives. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
Revolution is you.